I was doing some work with Nava and there was a, a new hire there and, and we were talking about DevOps. And I said to her, you know, so what does DevOps mean to you? And she said, all the things that I didn't need to know when I used Heroku. What predicts stuff is like your learning ability, the ability to synthesize information and process on the fly, your mindset and emergent leadership, which is not just, you know, can you take charge where you can help, but also can you step back when it's time to let someone else lead instead? This is why I hate this idea that we should use like human nature as some guide to how we should create our societies, because the one thing that distinguishes us is that we change things and, and solve problems and synthesize things in new ways that have never been done before. Hello, and welcome to OllieCast, the podcast about observability. I'm Charity Majors, co-founder of Honeycomb.io. And I'm Rachel Chalmers with Merry Ventures. OllieCast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program that helps companies building cloud infrastructure, developer tools, and APIs take their products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic or a speaker, Find us on Twitter at Ollicast, O-11-Y-C-A-S-T. So very few people have really had the kind of cross-industry exposure to DevOps teams of all types that you on the door team have had. To what extent are there unifying skills that really cross all boundaries, or is it kind of impossible to characterize? Like, I guess really what I'm asking is how fungible is the DevOps skill set, really? That's a great question, and... I can only really talk about things I've seen. I don't really think there's a common skill set in the sense of you must have this, 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 this. My personal experience, which I kind of see reflected in, in the industry is, you know, I started in 2000 in a dot-com in London where I was the second employee and I had to do everything. I was mm -hmm. racking the servers, I was installing the operating system. And you I knew was... how to do none of it when you showed up, I mm -hmm. assume. Right. I mean, you know, I It was I, a great had... time for those of us with English degrees. Oh yeah. <laughs> music majors. I, sure. I had a philosophy degree. You know? I, I have well, a CS degree. This is a um, room full of liberal arts majors. Perfect. Yeah. I mean I, and I had a personal computer when I was a kid, yeah. um, and I did my philosophy essays on Emacs on Red Hat, which and I mine in because LaTeX. Because you do. I mean, like, call one out for Red Hat. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh my but God! Kids, this was before there were any SREs. We called ourselves sysadmins. Sysops, even. Yeah, when sysadmins ruled the earth. <laughs> right. And like, it, uh, the only reason I got Red Hat was because I bought a computer with Windows on it, and it died, and I didn't have the CD, so I went down to it was free. Right, Oxford University Computing Services, and I'm like, hey, can I have an operating system, please? <laughs> and they said, here's a Red Hat CD. Passed around like Samus Dot. <laughs> Uh, and so, you know, uh, it was solving problems and, yeah, and yeah, yeah. everything's evolving all the time. Yep. And the idea that you can be an expert in some skill and have your career be that thing, you know, once upon a time, maybe, but not anymore. And the one universal is that we're all solving problems. Yeah. And, and that's really what it's all about. I mean, I, I was doing some work with, with Nava um, and there, there was a, a, a new hire there and, and we were talking about DevOps. And, and I said to her, you know, so, so what does DevOps mean to you? And she said, all the things that I didn't need to know when I used Heroku, which I thought was a great mm. definition of DevOps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's space. really good. Right, mm. which is fascinating. But it, it points to the fact that it's, it's just like, you, you've got to learn shit, you've got to solve problems mm -hmm. and you've got to work it out. And, and certainly I've been in situations where I haven't not known how to do things and I've been really Really scared about it, and I've been like, "Oh my god, you know, what if I screwed this up?" And I get through it with, with the help of people around me, um, and being able to ask for help is a really important most skill. Most groups are not permanent, huh? Most groups are not permanent, right? Most groups are not permanent, and and most places there's people you can ask to solve problems, and if not, you find a way to do it in a way that hopefully isn't catastrophic, mm -hmm. which is an important skill, knowing how to try things out in a way that isn't catastrophic. But like ultimately, it's electronics. Von Neumann machines, like the, the fundamental principles are well known and well understood. All ones and zeros. Now would be a great time to introduce yourself. 
My name is Jess Humble. Um, I'm Chief Technology Officer of DevOps Research and Assessment, a small three-person company that researches DevOps and does assessments for people. I've also written some books on software, uh, co-authored Continuous Delivery, Lean Enterprise, DevOps Handbook, and most recently Accelerate with Dr. Nicole Forsgren, my CEO, and Gene Kim. And Jez is short for Jezebel? <laughs> it is now. <laughs> okay, great. Just checking. So... As I said, Charity and I have already committed Accelerate State of DevOps, the report, to memory. Mm. Uh, and we, we preach it to the team every, every, every night before bed, um, a few verses. <laughs> we fell on it with glad cries because you identified this group of elite DevOps and this mirrors exactly what we've been seeing in the market. So can you talk about your elite group and what characterizes them? Yeah, so in previous years, and this is the fifth year, fifth year we've done it, in previous years, we've had low, medium, and high performers. Uh, we do this thing called cluster analysis in statistics where we take all the responses and we ask the algorithm to split them into groups that are more like each other than they are the other groups. This is uh, where Nicole's academic background really shines in the report. It's so clear. Yeah, I mean, Nicole is a truly brilliant statistician and scientist, but she's also really good at explaining things. And if you read the second half of Accelerate, she lays out all the statistical stuff behind it in a very clear way, which is excellent. A great communicator as well as uh, just a brilliant scientist. And so, you know, I'm not going to go into the details here, but yeah, we do cluster analysis. We find high, medium and low performing groups. And then this year, something really interesting happened. We found this kind of elite performing group, which is actually a subset of the high performers, 7% of our overall responses. They are deploying on demand multiple times per day. They can get changes out into production in less than an hour. And in common with all our groups, they also achieve really high levels of stability. They can restore service in less than an hour in the event of an outage or service degradation. And they have these really low change fail rates, which is a measure of your quality of your release process. When they push changes out, they don't typically need to remediate. So they achieve high levels of stability, high levels of throughput, and we measured availability for the first time this year. They also achieve uh, significantly higher levels of availability. Uh, in fact, I think 3.5 times higher than our low-performing group. I love that you attached actual numbers to those groups. This was really eye-opening for me because I read that, I read the numbers, and I went, holy shit, we've been building for not only the top 7%, but the top 3.5% of all teams. And I thought in my mind that we were building for more like the top 20%. So that was a real come-to-Jesus moment for me. <laughs> oh, shit. I have been telling you for two years that you assume everyone's somewhere well, near just, as smart as you are. And you know, I'm not that smart, honestly. <laughs> but, but I've been fortunate enough to work with like, really great teams, and yeah. so my idea of what a great team looks like is skewed, I think. But what really fascinated me about this is that the difference between these elite teams and, and the rest often comes down to culture. And yeah. you spend a lot of time talking about what characterizes the culture. I went culture in a long tweet groups. storm about this, about because I started thinking about it, I'm like, this is so true. It is not the best, quote unquote, engineers that make the best teams. You know, The team, I, God bless them, I love my team, but it's not the best engineers that I've worked with ever at Honeycomb, like, by and large, like on average. We have a lot of junior folks, like very consciously. We've brought in a lot of junior folks, a lot of people right out of hack academies, you know. And, and it was, that's part of why I thought, you know, well, we're probably down, you know, 75th percentile. Because it's not, you know, the superstar engineers that I've worked with. But the skill set of being a great team member is not the same skill set as being a great quote-unquote engineer. Exactly. And totally agree. It would be so easy to conflate these results with, well, those teams just have the 10x engineers. Yeah, and that and turns out not to be true. It's all about emotional intelligence. Yeah, I mean, there's a great story from Adrian Cockcroft where he would go and give these lectures to these kind of 
big enterprises and they'd, they'd say to Adrian, you know, it's all right for you and Netflix, you've got all these amazing people. Where do you get them from? And he would turn around and say, I get them from you. Because it's not actually the people. So there's a little bit there where I'm like, okay, but the Netflixes and the Facebooks of the world, because they have tens of thousands of applicants every year, they can screen them whatever the hell they want to and get great candidates, right? And so I feel like, yes, they're kind of skimming the, what they see as the cream of the crop, but they're skimming the cream of the crop in a very narrow sense and they're leaving behind a lot of incredibly high performers because they don't conform to, they can't answer this one unique like distributed systems question in an interview. It's, it's really interesting. I took a totally different lesson away from that oh, story than you did. Me. So that's fascinating in its own right. But like the story, that, that what I took away from that was that it was the system effects that were important and the organizational structure, yeah. Oh, yeah. not the individual people. Well, that's also yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's also true. And that's, I mean, I, I see that again and again. the thing that you see is that, you know, a, an engineer is hired into a Netflix or a Facebook or whatever, and they come in with a set of raw skills, which are what the Facebooks or Netflix value, but they come out transformed, and they're able to take that culture and you know transplant it to somewhere else and bring the things that they've learned and bring the team up with them. Because they're, you know, they're then the ambassador for the culture that they learned, and the culture was what empowered engineers to succeed. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think you know the team is the unit of performance. Yes. This yeah. idea of individual performance, I think, is fundamentally flawed. It's ridiculous. Individual variance is overwhelmed by team and organization level effects. Yep. Um, we love to think in the West that it's like, you know, the individual, but, you know, we are the product of our environment and the things around us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the only way it makes sense to talk about individual difference, um, I really love the work of Carol Dweck talking about yep. mindset. When people talk about A and B players, you know, I love to tell the, the story mm. that Malcolm Gladwell tells about, you know, the, the big company that followed the McKinsey advice of the 90s of only hiring the A players and letting them do whatever they want which was Enron. Um, and <laughs> Lord of the Flies. Right, and you know there are A and B players. The A players are the people with a growth mindset, which goes back to what we were talking about earlier yes. about yes. you know DevOps engineers being people who solve problems and acquire the necessary skills, and, and, and that's and true in a team context. And who are willing and able to turn that, that eye towards problem solving on the organization itself and to iterate and to learn from their failures, not just try the same thing over and over. And this right. is one area where I actually see the really big players learning from their experience. I mean, I would say that in the last 10 years, Facebook and Google have changed their recruiting mm -hmm. and it still systemically discriminates against underrepresented people. But one of the things they're literally testing for now is emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, at Facebook, it's called the Jedi qualities. Oh, yeah. And you are seeing, on the one hand, this selection for people who do know how to problem solve in a consensus way. On the other hand, and I think this is something we continually neglect in these conversations, you're also seeing organizational commitment to having those people's needs met, mm -hmm. having really good insurance, having really good support for maternity and paternity mm -hmm. leave. Because a lot of what we're talking about when you look at the difference between A and B players and people who have resilience and people who yeah. don't is how many resources they have available yeah, to you. And how distracted are they? Can they show up to work with their whole self and not feel tugged in 15 different directions because yes, they're so yeah. anxious about yeah, everything? Yeah. So it's the emotional intelligence of the organization and the security. that allows people to feel the emotional mm -hmm. safety that they need to be able to problem solve in innovative ways. There's, there's a really good interview in the New York Times with Laszlo Bock, who used to be uh, SVP of PeopleOps at Google, and he talks about uh, the three characteristics that he hires on. I mean, he says, like, all those dumb questions, like how many pianos there are in California, he literally says those predict nothing. Yeah. Uh, and what predicts stuff is like your learning ability, the ability to synthesize information and process on the fly, your mindset, people who can learn from failure, uh, who don't commit the fundamental attribution error, and emergent leadership, which is not just, you know, can you take charge where you can help, but also can you step back 
when, when it's time to let someone else lead instead. And I think, I thought that was that's good. Well, I think there's enormous applications for my industry, when by my industry, I mean finance and venture. If you look at how venture is conducted, the vast majority of it is still selecting for A players and, and far from providing psychological safety. They're chasing safety. those it's few the outliers that they think will produce. Everybody wants their own Uber or Airbnb. It's, it's very much winner take all. And I think it's still very much an open question whether you can practice venture in a different way and be sustainable. There's a good book I read called Chasing Stars, which yep. is all about the portability performance in financial services. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you've read mm. it. I have not, but it sounds amazing. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, yeah. And that talks about some of this stuff as well. Anyway, we've totally derailed <laughs> from talking about your <laughs> amazing great, report. It was a great derailment, though. We, I can talk about culture in, in the report. I mean, yes. none of the stuff I've yeah. just talked about so, is... So, like, what characterizes some of the organizations who are struggling with DevOps? So we got a really another really interesting group out of our cluster analysis this time, and the underperformers, I think you called them. We really had trouble finding a good name for this group because their intentions are really good. I did find you this know, whole section really I, fascinating. I feel like one of the most one of the misguided. slogans misguided. that have had the, the greatest impact on me was "What's the worst that can happen?" <laughs> we used to say this to each other all the time at Linden Lab when we were trying to decide whether or not to do some, something or not. We'd often just look at each other and go, "What is the worst that can happen?" Site goes down, fine. It's happened before. We can get it back up, you know. And, and I love that attitude because you know, more companies fail, more teams fail because they don't try enough things or because they don't move fast enough. They don't fail for like lack of fundamental resources. They don't fail for they they fail because they aren't moving fast enough and trying things fast enough and learning. Lyndon always fascinates me. I mean, you've heard me say this before, but there's a generation of extraordinary women engineers who came out of Lyndon. And, and trans engineers of both genders. And, yeah. and it, it wasn't even like a particularly progressive environment as San Francisco companies yeah. go, but it was, it was psychologically safe. It was psychologically in safe. a way that made I it... I would show up to meetings in my pajamas. I would sleep under like wherever, and people were just like, well, you know... I had never felt unsafe to do anything there. And if you had told me 15 years ago that Second Life would be this extraordinarily influential engineering achievement, I'd yeah. be like, I don't think so, I, yeah. and yet here it is. In many, many ways it wasn't. I mean, it never really, we were, <laughs> we were before our time, but Technically it the, wasn't, culturally I think it's culturally, been enormous. Culturally it was huge. I yeah. think it's really undervalued. It's interesting, I was working for the federal government in 18F a couple of years ago, and we had some ex-Linden people yeah. at 18F. And 18F was, for me, I mean, I never worked at Linden, but 18F had a, that whole psychological safety thing. Mm-hmm. It, it was really good in that respect, and I, I loved working there. On my first day I got this uh, sticker which was made by a woman called Lauren Ancona, and it says, winging it, we're all making it up as we go along. And I stuck that to my laptop. That was one of the first things I did when I joined 18F. And that really helped me, that idea that actually we're all in the same boat, mm-hmm. we're all just making it up, and, and we can lean on each other. And I wonder if this is a struggle that we have when we're talking about observability, because we have tended to talk about how complex these systems are and how difficult it is to manage them and how uh, the tools need to help you navigate this really difficult world. Maybe what we need to foreground is is the collaboration that you can achieve yeah. with observability tools. Well, this, and is a, this is the thing that like from Honeycomb, from the very beginning, we don't build for individuals. We build for teams. You know, I, I always say I learned Unix by reading other people's bash history files. That's how I learned. And I feel like the, to the extent that we can tap into people's curiosity, lower the barriers, and, and just m- tap into the social snoopiness, like I want to just like look over the shoulder of the great engineer who's working on a thing that I'm fascinated by. I don't want to ask them because that's terrifying. <laughs> I just want to look at what, what the questions that they're asking through this tool, you know? I want to look at their history. If I get paged about something, the first thing I want to do is go to the expert in that and 
not talk to them necessarily, maybe it's 3 a.m., but like look at what they were doing when they interacted with that system because it's so informative. And I feel like this is the thing that we've seen over and over. Like we have a hard time getting Honeycomb into organizations, but once we get it inside, we do almost nothing with post-success. you know, success. But the adoption just goes up and up because we've made it so easy to just observe what each other is doing and collaborating. I post something into Slack, just like, ah, this is interesting. You click on it. You get access not just my graph, but my history and everything that I've done. And I really want to find ways to incentivize people with the UI to add comments, like put something that's in your brain about the context, put it into the tools so that other people can search it and, and explore using that information. Because like, we can't keep leaning on our brains to reason about these systems because they're too big and they change too much and they're sprawling. And not only that, but my brain is not accessible to you. Right. right. You know, the tool is. And, and this is where I think um, the real legacy of both XP and Agile is in peer programming. I think it dwarfs every other innovation, just like sitting oh, beside somebody. Right. But, <laughs> but sitting down together but and yes. working on something, it forces you to empathize and it forces, and it you, forces you to see you through somebody else's eyes. Talk and think out loud. Right. Like right. That, that to me was the biggest value I got from public speaking was I've always been someone who could not think and talk at the same time. I could do one or the other. You know, if you wanted me to change my mind in the course of our argument, I would have to leave the room. <laughs> uh, and, and Put like, on a new persona. I would. I would have to <laughs> Process it offline and come back to you. And and I now can after like five years of just grueling. And pair programming is, is the same way. It forced you to talk through what you were doing and thinking. And I think that's the fundamental problem. I mean, Jez, you're characterizing everything we do as technical workers, as problem solving. Our little brains are too small to solve these problems. The systems have emergent behaviors that have so gone context. way beyond human scale. We have to figure out how to work together. And I think the, the other problem which, which you, you also hint at is like a lot of the heuristics we use are not actually, they're not accessible to your mind. You're using right. these heuristics, but if you ask someone to explain what right. the heuristic it's is intuition. and how they're applying it, it's, it's, so it's intuitive. Deep. So that's no good. You yeah. can't scale that. Yeah. And, and so you've got to work out how you can explain and teach other people that, which yeah. is one of the big problems of ops. Yeah. I mean, there's no ops school, there's no DevOps school, and yep. we all develop these uh, heuristics that we can't articulate, but we yeah. apply all the time. Well, and this is the thing I talk about all the time when it comes to the tools that we've had. We've got the time series aggregates where everything that happened in this interval of a second gets smushed into one value. The only way to interpret these old-fashioned dashboards is with your intuition. You know, and when you try and give a software engineer and you're like, hey, software engineer, please be on call. Here are your dashboards. They don't have that intuition. It's literally impossible. You're asking them to do two jobs. And like a big part of what we've been trying to do at Honeycomb is, is that's just a bad model. You know, you have to be able to get to the raw events. You have to be able to speak not in terms of like CPU and load average and memory, but in terms of like functions and variable names. And like software engineers who spend all day looking at code well, when they're trying to debug it and understand it, they need to be looking at something that's familiar to the context from which they come. I don't remember where I was going with that. But yes, <laughs> intuition. Absolutely. I, I absolutely agree that like the reason I ran about dashboards is you need so much intuition to unpack what's going on. There are no straight lines to draw to the problem that you're trying to solve in your code. And this is why I think there are so many humanities grads in DevOps, because it is about intuition. It is about interpreting very, very complex signals from very, very large fields and, of data. And, and synthesizing. Like, Yes, and also like if you're a good enough, I, I consider myself a good enough technologist. I'm a pretty weak programmer, good enough technologist. But like communication skills are so key that it kind of doesn't matter because if you're on a level playing field, if you can communicate and synthesize and ask for help, then you're just as good as anyone who is a rock star at those things. None of us are going to build Google on our own. The key uh, insight of Sapiens was that 
Humans are a storytelling culture, and the thing that sets us apart is our ability to build these massive stories together and to build off of each other's work. Like the U.S. Constitution. Yeah. This is why I hate this idea that we should use, like, human nature as some guide to how we should create our societies because the one thing that distinguishes us is that we we change things and, yeah. and solve problems and synthesize things in new ways that have never been done before. Evo psych is bullshit, TLDR. Oh, yeah. Co-signed so hard. Yeah, All plus right. 100. Um, so I do want to get back to, um, we kind of briefly touched on misguided performers and uh, mm-hmm. people who do badly. So we found this really interesting group where they're deploying really infrequently and it takes them a long time to get stuff live. So, you know, between one and six months. And they also have this relatively low change fail rate. It's like 16 to 30%, which is... Lower than our high performers, but not as bad as our low performers. Here's the thing. As you know, data doesn't tell you why people are doing something. What happens is their time to restore service is really, really bad. Mm. What we think is happening is they're putting loads of work in to prevent bad things from happening. Mm-hmm. So doing more testing, more inspection, more heavyweight change management. So they're trying to like really make sure nothing goes wrong. And most of the time that works. When something does go wrong, oh my God, they're totally fucked. Yeah, and I it mean, it takes them a really long time to fix it. Again, because of my finance DNA, this just totally jumped out to me as a risk-averse population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're trying really hard to forestall any hint of failure, and as a result, their results are not competitive. When I with talk the about testing and production, this is what I'm talking about: is taking some of that energy away from the preventing failures, and literally just reassigning it to resiliency to detecting quickly to making it not that big of a deal to rolling out to small subsets of the population using feature flags or like internal testing or canaries or like automated promote like just it's not free it's not like you just quit caring about stuff after you've taken these resources away from pre-production it's that you reallocate them to hardening and to making it not a big deal when failures do happen and now i realize it dovetails with the helicopter parenting versus free-range parenting conversation as well right you can't and also you know that's how kids learn it's how systems learn too they need to fail a lot it turns out systems are our kids they they are in a very real way that that's a little too real Uh, But yes, they need to fail a lot, and teams need to practice failing a lot, too. Everybody in your team needs to know how to get to a known good state. Everybody on your team needs to not freak out when something breaks. You need to learn to self-soothe. Spoiler alert, things are broken right now that you just don't know about right. all the time. And this is why like the dirt stuff that Google does. Um, Eating and- dirt? That's great. The, 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 I mean, that's, yes. <laughs> good for your immune good. system. The, the disaster recovery testing exercises they do at Google, Kripa Krishnan's team. Is it literally called DIRT? Yeah, disaster recovery testing. Eating DIRT, I love that. For um, your system's immune system. Yeah. So I found myself feeling so much compassion for these misguided underperformers because their intentions are really good. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I was sort of thinking, or who hurt are you? Terrible. You know, who told you that, that failure meant that you were not they have a boss who yells at them. Exactly. Well, there's some other things. I mean, before we go into this, I just want to kind of go back a bit. I mean, one, one of the things you're talking about, failure is inevitable. I mean, I, I remember this talk that John Allspore gave, must have been like eight years ago now, where he talks about the move from MTBF to MTTR. Mm-hmm. Like instead of trying to prevent failures and like extend the time between failures, it's all about time to restore. And I think that insight, that has really stayed with me and really proven to be true. Yeah. And the thing is that you need to practice it. You do actually need a con- constant stream of small failures to practice or you're not going to be able to shrink, shrink that amount of time. It's, it's like running drills. And I, and I love, I mean, you were talking about testing and production, like Cindy Schroederen's blog posts about mm-hmm. testing and production. I, I found those really excellent as yep. well. She has a really nice diagram about pre-prod testing and then prod testing. 
and all the different types of protesting, which I, I stole and, and put on all my slides with attribution, of course, because it, it expresses that so well. We, we find that these misguided performers also are strong users of functional outsourcing, which is one of the other things we looked into this year. We find functional outsourcing is really bad, but also pervasive, despite you're talking about Agile and XP. They all talk about cross-functional teams and the importance of cross-functional teams. I still go to lots of organizations who say they're doing agile, but they outsource testing. Yeah. Or testing is a completely separate team. And you know, we find that I mean, it's very bad. Elite performers almost never use functional outsourcing. Um, but but that's another kind of one of the there's like practices in XP and Agile. Yeah. XP and Agile is it's either like Apple Source. Or, I mean, it's just like, of course everyone's doing that. Or it's like, no, we're, we're not going to do that. Yeah, and it's it's like all the way back to the mythical man month. The reason those functional teams decrease performance is because of the communications overhead. Mm-hmm. You've got these very solid walls between the, the different functions and getting through those walls takes a real resource cost. And, and you can you can model this in math. I mean, basically what happens is you have a high transaction cost. When you have a high, high transaction cost, you end up with big batches. Yes. And, and that's exactly what's happening. It's just Q theory. Yeah. And so when you have big batches, you yeah. want to put a lot of effort into stopping something from going wrong because then... You know, you you just can't work in small batches, and small batches are an essential prerequisite to be able to you know test in production and, and restore service rapidly in the event of something going God, wrong. God, so that's a really strong incentive to be risk averse. Right. Yeah, it's all math. It is amazing the extent to which you can just bring it back to simple math. Yeah. And there's so many organisations where it's just like we can't do this. This is impossible. And it's like you will fail. Yeah. So how often do teams actually execute this as a turnaround? How often do teams who are low performers? really transform themselves and become high performers. Do you see this happen often? Yes. What does it take? Absolutely. And in fact, the story of the continuous delivery book is the story of a team that I was on in 2005 where we were doing releases, you know, on weekends in the data center using Gantt charts. And a team of us, there was eight of us, who basically our job was to get the software deployed into a production-like environment. And it was a shit job. We, Sounds bad. It, yeah, I and mean, the it was pay terrible. was terrible. We, I mean, you know, we were consultants, so we were paid better <laughs> than the permies. But you know, it, it's still. I mean, we were literally in this tiny room, and it was really sweaty and gross. Um, you know, it was Java, right? So Java's platform independent. Cool, really um, gross. You know, so we're, we're de- developing on Windows laptops, deploying to Solaris yeah. cluster. Yeah. That couldn't possibly yeah, go wrong, yeah. right? Oh my God, you are from the past. <laughs> So our team was in charge of deploying to the Solaris cluster. We found all these problems the moment we deployed it. It took us two weeks to deploy it the first time. We found all these problems like developers would cache data on the file system. That works great on your laptop. Yes. Not so good in the cluster. We put NFS in place to fix that problem. <laughs> Ooh, now you have two problems. Right. There you go. Perfect. So that, that was where it, it came from. And we actually... We had automation. We had an 8,000-line ant script, which automated the process. And we went to the ops people and we're like, hey, how do you like our 8,000-line ant scripts? Broadly speaking, they told us to fuck ourselves. And we said, you know, what, what technology do you like? And they said, we use Bash. So we said, okay. And we built them a, a deployment system in Bash called Conan the Deployer. <laughs> and you would give it the tag in CVS to build off and the name of the environment to deploy to. And it took us like a, a couple of months to build this thing. And we did some really shanky things. I mean, we were deploying to WebLogic and in, in the day, you installed WebLogic through the clicky installer, and we weren't going to do any of that shit. So what we did is we got a clean Linux install, we installed WebLogic, and then we did a file system diff, and we took all the binaries mm-hmm. and put them in CVS, and then we created a directory for every environment we were deploying to and copied the environment into that directory. So installing WebLogic was like, check out the binaries, check out the right directory with that environment's configuration, and you were done. The so, machine does the clicking for you. Right, and, and you know it, it certainly invalidated the EULA. Like, that was clearly the case. But 
you know, it solved the problem. And so we ended up being able to do, um, again, we only had one set of production hardware. We had these uh, Sun E4500s, which are these like six oh, yeah. U. Oh, Tardises. Yeah, <laughs> huge, really good I.O., tiny little CPUs. We calculated that each of these boxes would be outperformed by an iPod. <laughs> so we were literally deploying into a cluster of iPods. Awesome blinky lights, though. Really good blinky they lights. They look amazing. And do you remember how they smelled? I used to love the smell of those machine rooms. So good. Sorry. No, no. I mean, that's the visceral... <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, amplified by the, those weekends in the data center, right? Narrator says, Rachel is high on drugs this week. <laughs> <laughs> And also has Stockholm syndrome from data centers. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I mean, we got it down to the point where I mean, we only had one set of hardware. Blue green deployments was invented to overcome the fact we only had one set of production yeah, hardware. Totally. But we got the deployment process down to like less than a second. So for... I know that it can be done. That's not my question. How often? How is often it done? does it get done? And and what makes a team that has been a low performer for a while? What is the ingredient that suddenly makes them transform? I, I think. It's the sense of urgency mm-hmm. that actually we need to do and something about personal, this. Personal, personal, like identification with the problem. Like you feel not just like well, I'm helpless. I'm just a problem. Like no, identify with this problem. It's mine to solve. That yeah. Sort of thing. There's a certain sense that you see learned helplessness can, in organizations. Can teams hire their way out of this problem? I don't think so. I mean, Deming has this saying which I really like, which is that if you hire a good person into a bad system, what happens is that you break the person. Is it hopeless? What makes a bad system into a good system? I think what changes, I mean, and we see this again in the State of DevOps report, is good leadership, effective leadership. Um, So we talk about transformational leadership in Accelerate and the things that make an effective transformational leader. And those things predict your ability to implement the technical practices monitoring, observability, continuous delivery, the management practices, effective management of work in process, visualization of the flow of work and of quality, and of product management processes like working in small batches and allowing teams to experiment. All these things are enabled by effective leadership. They predict culture. So, I mean, that's interesting. The way you change culture is by implementing the practices. And the way you implement the practices is by having leadership, which encourages you to do that and then rewards people who who do it well. Yeah, I mean, I'd flip the argument on you, Charity. I would say every company we talk about that's engaged in DevOps transformation is doing exactly this. I mean, the canonical example of the elite is Cap One, which has been around for a long time. And it really was the commitment of the leadership to changing the culture. It's been around so long that Waterfall was state of the art, and now it's it's able. Yeah, to Yeah, I think it's it's, it's it's mysterious to me because I've never really participated in that. Like Linden was my college, right? right. And they did things well. Yeah. And I've always been lucky enough to work places where they do things well, far enough that I feel offended if I come into a place that doesn't do things well. So I make them do things well, you know. Whereas I came from consulting, which is sure, the opposite. <laughs> right. Well, so the other my my other like reason for asking this question is because in my experience, and I've said this a few times, like. When you're putting software engineers on call, assuming a functional team, which is a giant assumption, you know, but like assuming that you have a functional team, I have put software engineers on call successfully. I have put software engineers on call and had it fail spectacularly. And sometimes I've had it fail and succeed with the exact same team. And for me, assuming a functional team with good communication and all these things, there's been a missing link there that has been observability. That has been, you know, giving software engineers a tool that speaks their language that they can use to debug their own stuff in production, instead of, you know, making it so that they're trying to fly blind, fix problems without having the data that they need, the debugging, you know, context that they need, or the access that they need to, to do it. And my experience has been that the past twenty years of us building monitoring software, you can't 
put software engineers in front of that and say, now own your code. You just can't do it. It's it written by ops for ops. It's been by ops for ops. And it takes all the intuition, like you were ta- talking about, to interpret it and to draw a line back to lines of code that are changing. And we need to like speak to them in their language. Yeah, and we find that in the data. I mean, we looked at monitoring and observability this year. We find that it, well, it's one of the factors that predicts uh, software delivery performance. It reduces burnout. Were you breaking it down by observability versus monitoring tools, though? So it's really interesting. What We asked people a bunch of questions about monitoring, and we asked people a bunch of questions about observability. Mm-hmm. And what we found is, which was kind of weird and interesting in its own right, is that they loaded together, which means sure. that people perceive them as being the same thing, yeah. even though we were very clear but on... But you can ask questions um, that are about different things without ever asking them to define it for themselves, you know? Right, exactly, which is what we did. I mean, mm-hmm. we, didn't, we didn't say observability. Mm-hmm. We didn't use that word or monitoring. We asked people a bunch of questions mm-hmm. that we had predefined based on our understanding and asking domain experts like you about what these things meant. So that that was kind of interesting, but they do predict, along with those other technical practices, you know, reduced burnout, lower deployment pain, uh, and so forth. And we also found that what's crucial is having a feedback loop back from what's going on in production to business decisions. Yes, yes, yeah. And we were really surprised to get our first business use case, what, in the first six months, Charity Navigator? The IT admin just gave his chief development officer an account so she could see big uh, donations roll in. It was astonishing. Yeah. So I think there is going to be a... I think that there's, there's a lot of these feedback loops that have been going on. Like chaos engineering is another big one. You know, chaos engineering without observability is just chaos. You know, you're just, you're just firing shit out there. And if you can't actually tell very specifically, you have to get down to the raw events, you know, what is the impact of this? How did it change? What changed? Otherwise, you see people like doing chaos engineering. They fire shit off into their stacks. They find out a month or two later that they screwed themselves up in some way. Like one to two percent of all requests have been failing because of something that they did that they couldn't see. You know, and so I, I I totally hear you when you're saying that people think it's the same thing. And I think it's our job to start explaining to people that they're different. And the reason that I feel it's important to me that that we define them and, and disambiguate them is because we have 20 years of best practices for monitoring. This is good shit that I don't want to lose. I don't want to muddy the waters because the best practices for observability are often the exact opposite. And I don't want to be like, every alert must be actionable. Uh, you know, you shouldn't have to stare at graphs all day. The system should let you know when it's down. Like all of these rules that are good rules and I don't want to muddy the water because observability is very different. It's not biased towards outages. It's not biased towards you don't have alerts usually because it's it's about interrogating. It's about many of the questions aren't about downtime or outages or anything. It's not biased towards that. And you should look at graphs every day. You should have the muscle memory of you ship some code, you go look at it. Did what you think you just deployed actually deploy? Did you ship what you think you shipped? Is the impact what you expected it to be? Does anything else look weird? Like there's just so much context there that your your eye may pick out that you could never have predicted and written a monitoring alert for. So that's why I feel very strongly about, you know, observability is an emerging thing. I'm not trying to denigrate monitoring at all. I'm just saying it's different. And particular for software engineers who are trying to empower to own their own systems, you can't really give software engineers a monitoring system and let them own their own code through it because it doesn't speak that language of variables and functions and so forth. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things I think that's happening more and more is as we move to a product-based model, what you find is the system's changing quite often and the behavior of the system's changing quite often. And so this idea that you can predefine the things that are going yeah. to predict bad behavior, it's that insane. just doesn't hold anymore. It doesn't work anymore. I mean, uh, and as we Your move run to... book that'll have all of the possible outages, <laughs> you can refer to page 74 and like... 
Yeah, you I mean, I was, I was talking to um, to an analyst the other day, and, and he was saying, you know, this, this is a real thing. Level three support is no longer, you yeah. know, as as effective as it as it was because we can't predefine all the things that are going wrong anymore because our systems are changing so frequently. Yep. And as we're moving to, you know, this Google model of developers own the software, at least at the beginning, before it's become stable and predictable, mm-hmm. like that's when you need to so be able to understand what's going on without understanding how the behavior the system behaves because you don't know yet. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's it's a real shift from like the known unknowns and the, you know, the lamp stack where you could visualize, you could look at a dashboard and you could use your intuition, you would know where the problem was like instantly. And you don't get that anymore. You know, you, now you have a system that looks more like the National Electrical Grid. You know, it's like it's chaotic, it's ephemeral, it's blipping in and out of existence. And it's all unknown unknowns because you've solved the known unknowns. You're not getting paged about them. You fix them. Uh-huh. Every time you answer your phone, it's like, oh, this is new. And this uh-huh. is where I get really passionate about tools like Honeycomb and LaunchDarkly is that you know we are entering this, this new realm of complexity. And what we're actually working on is tools that encourage the best ways to solve those problems, the most social and collaborative ways for people to bring their insights together and, and figure out. Uh, unknown unknowns. Really, we keep cutting you really off, Jess. I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> this is this is great. Um, I mean, the, the only other thing I was going to say is like security. This is yeah. the other place where the unknown unknowns are really important, and and monitoring won't necessarily help you because people are finding new and exciting ways to hack into things all the time. And one of the things that struck me about a lot of the security breaches we've seen in the last couple of years is people didn't even know they were happening right. until much later. Yeah, and it strikes me that that's a perfect use case for this. Absolutely. Yeah, it turns out that the the origin for most of the chaos in the universe is people. <laughs> it doesn't matter if they're trying to use your systems or attack them, but like that's where all of the unpredictable shit that you never thought would happen is coming from. Well, at least in physics we have perturbation theory, but So what are you thinking about going forward, Jess? What interesting problems do you think this research pertains to and where do you think you can apply it? So we've spent a lot of time looking at the role of culture, which I think we started off this this section of the podcast talking about. And that for me is very interesting. I know Nicole finds it very interesting as well. And we're both really boosted about the fact we found a valid and reliable way to measure culture and its impact and the factors that impact it. I can see us doing some more stuff on that. This year, we also looked at the role of retrospectives and of autonomy and of trust. And we found some really interesting results there. And again, people always ask, well, how do you change culture? Because we're using psychometrics, we can investigate that. I mean, this for me, just taking a step back, Mm -hmm. the story of the scientific investigation of software teams is a terrible story because you cannot do randomized controlled experiments, Mm -hmm. or at least I'll say it's extremely hard to do randomized controlled experiments. And unethical. Yeah, you know, and also like companies don't want to have a control team because it's expensive. And I think what what Nicole did, which is use psychometrics to investigate software teams, that's a paradigm shift and it's proven hugely powerful. And so that's what I think the future of this is. How can we use psychometric methods to investigate how to build high-performing teams and high-performing organizations? That that I think is a, is a huge question and it's going to be very very fruitful and I would love more people to use these methods. We have to stop being one-offs as teams and we have to start learning from each other. Yes. Yeah. yeah. In, in scientific and valid and we've reliable do, ways. We've done this in, in our, we, we're starting to do this in our tools more and more but we haven't really even begun in terms of our teams. Yeah. Cool. Always such a delight talking to you Absolutely Jess. Absolutely Thank delight. you so much. Massive pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well that's all we have time for today. 
If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic or a speaker, find us on Twitter at OllieCast, O11YCast. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Have a lovely day.